So we are up to uh, the fourth church off the rank, so the seven churches. Um, and uh, I said last week that I bit off more than I can chew with trying to fit the Church of Thyatira in one message. So we're kind of doing this in two parts. So last week we went through the first part of um, the church in Thyatira, and that was mostly verses 18 up until uh, 23. And we're going to kind of take the second half of that uh, today. So let me just pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we ask right now that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us and illuminate Christ very clearly and his concern for his bride and that we would have a deep concern uh, for the things that you are concerned for. And so we, we just put ourselves humbly before you now and we ask that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at uh, the, the first half of this and kind of looked at this idea of seductive influences. Um, there's this uh, figure called Jezebel that we read in, in the first half of this passage. And there was this figure Jezebel that was um, seductively drawing Christians away into actually committing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed. To idols, And what I spoke about was that actually the modern day Jezebel of our 21st century culture is kind of seen in, in all of these seductive influences that is basically the air we breathe or the water we swim in that actually draw our devotion away from Christ. And uh, the three main ones I spoke about was uh, media, materialism and money. Just to name a few, but the three M's, media, materialism and money as these seductive influences which kind of draw our devotion away. And these seductive influences aren't simply innocent vices that we might have. Sometimes guilty pleasures we like to call them. We have to realize that we're actually being shaped by these uh, seductive influences. So they are shaping us in a particular way. And uh, as we read in verse 24, there were these things in the church of Thyatira, these seductive influences that were drawing his servants away. And they were actually causing them, some of them in the second half of verse 24, to learn about the deep things of Satan. So it's a very significant thing. Now, I don't necessarily believe that watching too much Netflix is necessarily learning about the deep things of Satan, um, unless you're watching like a documentary on, on Satan or something like that. But for the most part, uh, it seems like an innocent thing to do. But the reality is actually that um, we shouldn't be ignorant and um, kind of naively just give ourselves to these things that actually shape us in a way that cause our devotion to be given to something else. And that was largely the point of last week, that these things actually are designed to captivate our devotion, to give our attention to them. And our devotion is kind of like a zero sum. So if, if you start to give it to something else, it goes away from Christ. It's not like you can keep 100% devotion to Christ and then start to become devoted to other things. You're going to lose. And so these 
seductive influences actually draw us away. And so it might not seem like we are learning about the deep things of Satan, but I don't know about you, I would say anything that is actually drawing our devotion away from Christ seems quite satanic to me in the sense that Satan's goal is to draw our devotion away from him, from Christ, and give it to anything else anything else other than Jesus Christ. And scripture actually paints a pretty black and white picture of either following Jesus or being under the power of the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says. Uh, it's always like we are children of light or children of darkness. So Paul in Colossians 1 says, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us or brought us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So it's like you're either under the dominion of darkness or you're transferred into the kingdom of the son of his love. And it's, it's sort of one or the other. So while last week we focused upon those seductive influences, we won't go into detail about that today. Here from verse 24, Jesus turns to the rest of those in the church of Thyatira, and he says to you, to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Let me ask you a question uh, today. What are you holding on to? What are you holding fast to? And just to help us answer that question, let me just throw a bit of an example at you that um, might seem a bit extreme, but I don't think it's um, all that extreme. It, I don't particularly think it would be anything that would happen in Canberra in the next several years, but it could certainly go that way. The Lord knows. But let's just imagine that the government here, perhaps in Australia, announced that for every single person who affiliates with a church, um, who actually physically gathers and joins with a church, who holds to a biblical view of marriage and of gender roles, and therefore perpetuates hateful ideology, anyone who continues to affiliate with that church will be cut off from all government funds, from all government employment, and other employers who choose to take the side of the government that would view a biblical view of marriage as harmful and hurtful and damaging or a biblical view of sexuality as damaging, they could also cut you off from employment. And so you were faced with the decision. If you continue to affiliate with this community that could be labeled as um, a dangerous community that is spreading harmful ideologies, you would be cut off. What would you hold on to? in that moment? What would you hold on to? Would you kind of hold on to perhaps your ability to, um, as COVID has shown, to meet just online, not actually physically gather? So it doesn't really look like you're part of the community, but really you can still follow Jesus and still be part of this community from behind your screen, but no one's kind of going to know that you're actually part of that community. So you can sort of get the best of both worlds, stay on the good side of the government. Would you hold fast to your job and your life and say, you know what, uh, God cares about work. And so he probably cares that I 
I should work and feed my family. So I think he'll be okay with me not hanging out with this church because really he just cares about my work. And, and so I'll, I'll, I will actually stop affiliating, but really me and Jesus are still cool. Or would you hold on and hold firm to the call of Christ that we see all throughout these letters, the call from Christ to hold faithful to his name, to be obedient even to the point of death, to hold fast to the promise that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you, government or non-government, job or not, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Would that be what you would hold on to, that promise? And that is largely what we are being asked here today. What would you hold on to? So in this context, Jesus is calling these churches to hold on to their faithful witness, to hold on to the name of Jesus. And so today is about what holding fast to faithfulness looks like. And there are three particular areas of this that I want to focus on. Firstly is the simplicity of faithfulness. Secondly, the cost of faithfulness. And then thirdly, the reward of faithfulness. So firstly, the simplicity of faithfulness. Uh, I think the Christian life in our culture can sometimes seem a bit complex. If you um, follow Christian books, uh, there are probably thousands and thousands of Christian books every single year that come out telling you how to live your life as a Christian, seven steps to satisfied work places as a Christian or three steps to a better Christian marriage and do this and, and um, this is how you follow Jesus. And it, it, it's well intended, but it becomes very um, overwhelming. It's like we have choice anxiety. There's so many ways of following Jesus. And so it becomes quite complex. Do we do this? Do we do that? We've had all of these different movements that have come, the missional movement, the gospel-centered movement, the seeker-sensitive movement. It seems to change. And so it can seem quite complex, but there is actually a beautiful simplicity in our primary call to desire nothing more than to just dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple, Psalm 27, 4. There's actually a beautiful simplicity. Like if, if you boil it down, the most important thing for you right now, particularly if you're feeling overwhelmed, your calling, your calling right now is just to glorify God and enjoy him. Just your calling is just to love God. And if you feel overwhelmed, bring it back to that place. Right now, God, who doesn't need you, he, he, he doesn't actually need you. No, he, he desires you to be in relationship with him. But he's the God who doesn't need anything. He just, if anything, needs you to just sit at his feet and enjoy this simplicity of actually your calling is just to glorify God and enjoy him, to actually bask in his majesty, to enjoy him. So... Jesus explains in this text, I do not lay on you any other burden. So I'm not trying to lay any other burden upon you. Jesus is not in the business of laying unnecessary burdens upon you. He's actually in the business of removing burdens and taking them upon himself so that you can follow him wholeheartedly. 
because we live in an age of distraction and seduction, there, there can actually be more burdens that we feel in navigating this Christian life. But actually, there is a beautiful simplicity in the reality of all that we are simply called to do and to be as God's people. And that always starts at sitting at the feet of Jesus. That is the first place of faithfulness, just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so there will be more to this life. There's, there's more to it. But really, all of that flows out of that posture. And so this is why one of the things um, when the, the small group of us were gathering in Adelaide before coming over and we um, uh, had five values of our community that we wanted to value. And one of them was valuing simplicity in worship. So we value simplicity because we don't actually want to lay more burdens upon people. Um, and one of the key passages was in Luke 10, where you have the Mary and Martha story of how Martha is distracted by a lot of serving. So Jesus comes to the house and Martha is kind of doing all good things like preparing a meal and getting things ready for, for Jesus, the Messiah coming, a big, big um, event, obviously. And uh, Martha says to Jesus, Jesus, don't you care about Mary? Look at her. She's doing nothing. She's not, she's not helping. And I'm here getting all of the food ready. I'm doing all of this. Don't you care? And Jesus just uh, turns to her and, and says, Martha, you are distracted by much serving. There is one thing that is important and Mary has chosen it. Actually, the literal translation is she has chosen the best portion and it will never be taken from her. So Jesus says, you're distracted by much serving. Serving is not bad, but if it is at the expense of this, what is most important, sitting at my feet, it's pointless. Just take this place, take this place at my feet. This is what is most important. And so if you don't have this understanding of simplicity, of the simplicity of faithfulness. If you don't have that understanding, it'll kind of be like if you um, have a phone and you are busy and you're always on your phone, you need it for work. And so you're always on the move as well. And you're always low on battery. And for some reason you kind of go out, it's, it's at 10%. A few hours later, it's down to 2%. So you quickly go and charge it for like 10 minutes. And then you get up to like 12% and you go out and you keep doing your thing. But every hour you have to keep coming back and charging. And that would be an exhausting thing. You are constantly running low. Whereas we have to realize that we, we need to take this place at the feet of Jesus as the means of our empowerment. We need actually extended times of refreshment of being charged. But if um, I don't know if you're thinking this, if you're anything like me, I'd probably be saying, yeah, that analogy actually probably falls short in some ways. And I would say it, yes, I agree with you. Hypothetical Tom in the audience, I agree with you. That is, it does fall short. And here's where I would say it actually falls short because we, we shouldn't only think of sitting at the feet of Jesus as those moments separate from the rest of our life. I don't actually think that this understanding is at the expense of active engagement or is at the expense of what you do in work. I think this posture of simplicity is something that coexists with being in the workplace, with being on the move. And so a better analogy for it would be if you have one of those portable chargers, if you have your phone and you have a portable charger, but actually for the sake of this analogy, it is an infinite power source and you are constantly just being charged while you are on the move because this posture of simplicity 
of valuing the place of Mary at the feet of Jesus is not at the expense of you in the workplace. It's not at the expense of actually uh, doing the active thing. So we have to think of this as more of an ongoing posture that is supported by practices. It's an ongoing posture that is supported by practices rather than a separate thing that we do that is disconnected from then going to work or going to study. We should have a a holistic understanding of the simplicity of faithfulness. So it it shouldn't really feel like your life is compartmentalized. Like now's my time with Jesus and now's my time with hanging out with Mike at the pub. We should have a holistic understanding and there will be both intentional moments and spontaneous moments and the intentional moments of prolonged uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus on your own will actually support then the spontaneous moments. And just to make this really concrete, here's how I think this would work. And this is certainly what I tried to do when I was working in the federal government in Adelaide. Uh, if I was on my way to a meeting or something like that, and I was feeling quite flustered, here's where I think this is what simplicity of, of or just valuing that place at the feet of Jesus looks like when you are on the move. I think it would be walking to a meeting and you have like 20 seconds to get there, but on that walk, you just take 10 seconds to yourself while you're walking and just say, God, help me to know your peace right now in this meeting. I know that you are present here because there's not one square inch of this earth that you don't reign over. So help me to just be at peace right now and give me wisdom in this meeting. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. And you don't have to make it like weird and create some holy moment out of it and like get on your knees in the middle of the corridor. It's just something that literally you just do as you are walking or you take a moment at, um, at your desk. And I would do this and I would just have a piece of paper there. Or I had little post-it notes with scriptures at my desk and I'll just take a moment to just say, God, help me. I feel really anxious at the moment, but just help me to come back to that place at your feet and and just um, grant me peace because I know you can do all things. Please help me. And that's all. And that's what this posture of simplicity and valuing the place of Mary, of sitting at the feet of Jesus looks like even while you are on the move. And we have to believe that God actually answers prayers in those moments. It's more about quality rather than quantity. So you don't have to take an hour of prayer at lunch, 20 seconds of prayer with a heart that is longing for God to help you in that moment is valuable and God will help. And so if you feel like you are distracted and perhaps in your workplace, you do feel like you're disoriented and and it's just a rush and you're an anxious presence, then Maybe you do need to reorient yourself back to this place of simplicity. Maybe you need to reorient yourself back to this place of simplicity and valuing that place, the feet of Jesus, and remembering that what you are called to above all else is just to be a child of God, to just enjoy God's presence. Jesus does not want to lay upon you any other burden at the expense of the simple burden that you should have for longing for him. So this leads us to our next aspect of holding on to faithfulness. So this is the second part, the cost of faithfulness. So while there is a simplicity 
So there's most certainly a simplicity of faithfulness. There's also a cost to this as well. So we are to hold fast. And that obviously means that there must be something that is trying to pull us away. Like for Jesus to say, hold fast, implies that there is something that's trying to pull us away that requires us to hold fast to something so that we are not pulled away. And so we went over the temptations of a seductive culture last week. And before that, we went over the disease of bad doctrine, how it actually plagues churches and it does cause us to actually be drawn away from Christ. And so flowing out of our posture of simplicity in worship will be the costly, though spirit empowered, call to, as Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is the call, that is part of the cost of faithfulness, to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the um, condition here to this reward that Jesus gives, if you look back to the text here, Jesus says we have to hold fast to what we have, And in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. And then he goes on to the reward, which we'll talk about in the third aspect. But there is a condition to this, and that is perseverance. And that is part of the cost. So there's a call to persevere and hold on to faithfulness, and it will be costly. And I think the cost of faithfulness in this culture for us, like the reality is the cost of faithfulness in our culture is the cost of holding firm to the confession of our hope in the return of a Lord and Savior, which the majority of our culture either do not believe in or do not care about. And that is the core. We are to hold fast to that hope. And the confession of our hope is ultimately that there is coming a day where our Savior, where Jesus will return on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and a sharp sword out of his mouth by which he will strike down the nations. That is our hope. To most people that sounds ludicrous. Sounds crazy. And that is the hope that we have, that there is coming a day where every injustice will be brought into the justice of God, where Christ will actually come back. It'll be the most captivating sight anyone has ever seen. People who don't know Jesus will be calling for mountains to come down and crush their heads, lest they continue to stare at this holy God unatoned for. And I wonder, does that excite you? Does that thrill you, the thought of Christ returning? Have you been preparing yourself? I mean, I don't want to sound like in an apocalyptic way. We obviously still care about um, this, this earth now. But really, the hope of the Christian is that there is coming a day where Christ will return, where he will return, where he will make all things right. And I wonder if that excites you, if you honestly think about that, because if not, if not, then you may have wavered from this hope. You may have already been pulled away from this hope that Jesus is calling us to, to trust in him. You may have succumbed to this seductive culture, which doesn't believe in anything more than only what they can see and feel. And this idea of anything transcendent is just impossible to understand. And perhaps that has 
actually permeated itself into your way of thinking and so the return of Christ actually seems foreign and a bit daunting and there will be a fear and awe to that but there should be an excitement that undergirds it actually trusting that yes Christ is coming again that is our hope one of the creeds of the early church was Maranatha which was come Lord Jesus come come Lord Jesus that was the call of a lot of our brothers and sisters early on so we hold fast to biblical truth as part of this cost of faithfulness. We hold fast to the hope in the return of Christ. We hold fast to the word of God, which tells us that there will be people that call good evil and evil good. And we must not be swayed by that, but we must actually hold fast to the word of God, even when it sounds ludicrous in our culture, because culture does not dictate what normal or right is. God does. The God of heaven and earth dictates what is normal and right and pleasing for his people. And so there will be a cost in holding fast to faithfulness. There will be a cost in the perseverance it requires to keep his works until the end. And so thirdly, we've got the simplicity of faithfulness, how that must um, be the, at the forefront of our mind and really undergird everything. And flowing out of that will be the necessary endurance that we have to persevere through the cost of faithfulness. And then we do all of that for the joy set before us, which is this reward here. So this is in verses 26 to 28, where Jesus promises that those who do conquer keeping his works until the end, he will give authority over the nations and they will rule with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. And so this is the motivation Jesus gives for us holding fast to him. Now, you might be asking, what is this about? It's kind of painting a picture of like, you know, is the Christian hope that they'll be kind of bashing people, bashing pots and it's kind of like a really, um, you know, vigorous, image here of just authority over the nations and beating people down ruling them with a rod of iron so you might be asking what is what is this about this is all about sharing in christ's victory that's the reality of this is this is all about the union we have with christ and so to understand this passage we actually need to understand psalm 2 uh, that's where this uh, the words in this passage come from. So I'm just going to read out Psalm 2 here to help us understand this. Psalm 2 is a, is a messianic psalm, which is basically a psalm that was pointing to the Messiah. So written by someone many centuries before Jesus came, yet pointing to the Messiah Jesus reigning. Just like Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm where a lot of the imagery is talking of the crucifixion and Jesus actually quotes that. Psalm 2 is quite similar. So Psalm 2 says from verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So you have this, the first three verses here. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why, is there, why are people setting themselves up against God? Why are they constantly trying to attack God's people and attack God's anointed? Why is there so much injustice? And then what's the next verse? Verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision because what a silly thing to set yourself up against God. He merely laughs at that. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I'll just stop there. So, That's that imagery that we get now that Jesus uses to the church of Thyatira in Revelation saying, this is the promise. This is the reward. Now, if you read, if you read this psalm, you would probably not think, okay, that is a promise for me. Which unfortunately is a lot of thing that a lot of modern Christians do think that everything is applied to them before it's applied to someone else. But this really seems to be talking about this messianic king. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. That's surely talking about this promised king who will receive authority over the nations. This psalm describes how God will give to his own son the nations as his own heritage. And that is the very nations which were described in the first half of that psalm that set themselves up against God, that are constantly plotting in vain, setting themselves up against God. And God himself will then give those nations as an inheritance. That is, everything will actually be given as an inheritance to his son. And he says, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So that's the same language, right, that we get in Revelation 2. Where Jesus says here, the one who conquers, you who conquer, you who stay faithful to my name, you who keep my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. So this is what Jesus promises to us who conquer. We will have authority over the nations Rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken. Such is the unity between Christ and his church that we actually receive this very identity that was promised to him. And Jesus gives to us to share in. And so this is both a promise for the complete consummation of the kingdom of God when Christ returns. So really this promise is fully consummated or it will be fulfilled when Christ returns, where everything will be brought in subjection to him, where all things will flourish and prosper in creation as they were always intended. But it is also a promise that we get a foretaste of now. So this is important to understand because with the kingdom of God, there is always an already and not yet aspect of this. So it's kind of like we have a foretaste of something that we are awaiting the full taste of. And this promise is that very thing. We have a a foretaste of it, but we are awaiting the full taste. So we know that these promises of Christ reigning and ruling, they are inaugurated now, like we know, hopefully, that Jesus reigns. Jesus is king now. His kingdom has been inaugurated, but it is yet to be consummated. It is yet to come. So in this psalm, 
Psalm 2, God says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Now that's, that's, feel, that's fulfilled in the incarnation, right? Like that's where God uh, actually comes himself in Jesus so that that idea of today you've become my son is, is referring to uh, God himself becoming uh, man and Jesus being born as a son. But it's also mostly referring to the fact that the son was always the heir. And so God is saying, I, I as king am coming. I'm about to set my king over the people. So the firstborn son was going to take the throne. And so when God says today you've become my son, Jesus comes showing I am king. The king has come. So Jesus is king. He reigns. And through his life, death and resurrection, he secures the promise of ruling over the nations because he has triumphed over evil, which lies behind every nation raging and plotting against the Lord. And now he promises us this very same thing. And the beauty of this promise, and like this is, this is so important to understand, the beauty of this promise is that because we share, because we share in the inheritance of Christ now, so Romans 8, we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, we share in this inheritance now, and because we have this union with Christ now, we share in this victory as a foretaste now. This is actually a reality for us. We get to share in this foretaste And so Jesus promises that those who conquer and keep his works to the end, they will receive authority over the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. Now, what what does Jesus mean here? Because like I said, it kind of gives this, a lot of Christians actually through the ages have probably misappropriated this passage and these ideas of actually coming and conquering people and literally massacring them. Is that what this is talking about? Well, where else does Jesus talk about authority over nations? You might think of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Because all of authority is mine, Go and make disciples of all of these nations that I have authority over. We share in that authority because Christ identifies with his church. So the authority that Jesus has, we share in because Christ so identifies with his church. That's why when Saul, before he was transformed into the apostle Paul, when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus said that. Because Saul was persecuting the church and Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. And so we share in this authority. And this tells us a bit about our mission here as we hold on to faithfulness. See, we demonstrate, we demonstrate spiritual authority over the nations by proclaiming that Jesus reigns by proclaiming that there is a way for forgiveness of your sin. There is a way to be reconciled to the God of heaven and earth and it's through Jesus Christ. And that is the way that we proclaim because we have authority to go out and make disciples of all the nations. That is where our authority lies, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is good news. But notice that this side of Christ's return. So this side, while we wait for Christ's return, this authority that we have isn't actually an earthly authority. 
where we think that Christians or the church needs to be in a place of power. Like we don't think that the church needs to be in a place of power over society. We don't necessarily think that we need to have Christians, though it, though God may choose to use this, but we don't necessarily need to have Christians in places of power because we actually already have authority and the authority we have is a spiritual authority to tell of this coming king. And so a lot of people can kind of think of, well, the church needs to be in a place of power, but actually the church is always going to be a group of uh, broken vessels of jars of clay who are awaiting their all-powerful Savior to return and consummate what only He can. But on this side of heaven, while we have this authority, we proclaim and we tell all people, there is coming a day where the King is returning. And so you better be right with this King. And that is the authority that we have So there's a spiritual authority. We have a foretaste of this kingdom, but we actually await the full taste of it. And that is coming when Christ returns. And just the very last thing as I finish here, the last promise Jesus gives us uh, is that he will give the morning star. So this is verse 28. I will give him the morning star. Now this is symbolic of... Jesus himself and his rule. So uh, this is kind of getting a bit deep into Revelation, but in in Revelation 22, 16, right at the end, like just the, the last few verses of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus says, I am the morning star. And now he says, to you who conquer, I will give the morning star. So, This is saying, persevere, persevere for I have authority over everything. I rule and I reign and I'm coming again to dwell among you. I am coming again to consummate my kingdom. I'm coming to fully dwell among you all and you will have me in your presence. You will have me uninhibited. I will wipe away every single tear from your eyes. I'm the bright morning star. There is coming a day where actually all of those feelings of anxiety and sorrow that you feel will be long gone. They'll be completely non-existent because Jesus will dwell fully and completely among us. And this is what we hold fast to. So regardless of the direction of our culture, we hold fast to faithfulness in the name of Jesus. And we live, we live in the foretaste of this victory where we are ruling and reigning, but we actually await. We await the full taste. We await the day where Jesus himself will bring this about. We as a seemingly powerless people here in this society, we await our all powerful God to bring about what only he can and so we now have authority to proclaim this to all people and long for them to come under the authority of Jesus which really they already are but there is coming a day where they will obviously realize that and and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and so that is our hope and so I I hope that that is a real hope for you because it will be the only thing if our culture goes whichever way really to be honest it doesn't even matter 
The only hope that we should have is this hope in Christ, in the confession of Jesus Christ and this promise that yes, everything will be made right.